Welcome to Sky Talkers. Here are your hosts, Charlotte and Caitlin. Hello, and welcome to Sky Talkers. I'm your host, Charlotte. Hey, everyone. I'm your other host, Caitlin, and welcome to our first episode back from celebration. We are back. We are still jet lagged, <laughs> but we are here to talk all about the last two episodes of The Mandalorian, chapters 22 and chapter 23. Guns for Hire and The Spies. Oh, man. Okay. So just to recap, it is now April 16th. We're back from celebration, as Caitlin mentioned. And we watched this first episode, Guns for Hire, in our hotel room in London the couple days before celebration began. And then on Friday of celebration, we watched 20, chapter 23, The Spies, in a room with hundreds of people. And that was really incredible. And it was really fun also anytime Caitlin and I get to watch The Mandalorian or any Star Wars television show together. So that was really special. And it was really cool to experience Chapter 23 with a crowd. Yeah, we've been really lucky now to to watch three episodes at The Mandalorian with with a crowd because we got to go to the premiere and now... Um, now this last episode, I was convinced when we were at Celebration, I was like, they're going to show us the finale. They're totally going to show us the finale. <laughs> and, and, and then, then they, didn't. No. they didn't. They were like, all right, <laughs> thanks for coming. Bye. And I was like, just wait. Wait till the credits roll. <laughs> and they, they really held on to us, too, when yeah. they didn't raise the lights for a little bit, which is good because you should experience the credits. But... Yeah. yeah. I think we got our hopes up a little bit at the end there. Like, oh my God, they're going to show another one. Yeah. But it's okay. The surprise itself was good that we got this. <laughs> <laughs> it, it really was. But people were like walking out and I was like, I wouldn't leave Just yet. wait. I wouldn't leave yet if it were me. <laughs> you, right. I know. That's the thing. I, I remember us being like, wow, what a bold move to leave before right? the, <laughs> the full credits roll. Like, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. It yeah, it was it was such a treat as always to watch this with a group, and I'm really glad that we got to see this uh, at celebration. It was really fun, but now we just have one episode left. I'm not okay with that. I know this this flew by, and I think this by far has been my favorite season, which is really weird to say, but I think I've just enjoyed it the most. It's just been a really fun ride, and I'm gonna miss seeing Din and Grogu every single week. What the heck? What am I gonna do? Without Grogu every Wednesday. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know. know what we're gonna do. <laughs> I don't know. I'm so sad about it. It is going. It's going to be a sad, sad existence for us. Yeah, it's not okay. Uh, people just got to continue with their amazing Din and Grogu fan art that is constantly mm-hmm. on my feed. Yeah, it's my favorite thing ever. Yeah, there was uh, this fan art I retweeted today, I think, or yesterday, and it was someone who'd done a fan art of Grogu in the IG eleven twelve, I guess now uh, suit, and it was it said on the top, "Become ungovernable." <laughs> I know. I shared. I shared that on my Instagram story. It it's just too good. So funny. <laughs> Yeah, it's perfect. It's so um, perfect. Hearing that in a in a theater with people of you know that whole sequence of events with IG twelve and Grogu and the yes yes no 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 it was it was hysterical. Perfect. It was so funny. Yeah. Everyone was losing it. Before we get started, I think we should say we are going to do a short little celebration recap episode for our Patreon. Uh, so we don't want to spend too much time going over celebration now in this Mandalorian episode. But if you are interested in kind of the ins and outs of our celebration experience, that will be up on Patreon uh, sometime this week. Yes. Okay. So let's get started talking about chapter 
Chapter 22, Guns for Hire, which is directed by the absolutely incredible, incomparable Bryce Dallas Howard, aired on April 5th, 2023. What'd you think about this episode, Caitlin? What was the experience? Oh my God, what was the experience? (laughs) So Charlotte and I watched this in our hotel room in London, which was really fun because we, this was our first full day in London and you had, we had ended up sleeping 15 hours. <laughs> we had gone Oops. to bed really early the first day we arrived in London, right? Like we both got into London at like 6 a.m., 7 a.m. on Tuesday, right? So we stayed up the whole day. We powered through, had really great energy actually all throughout Tuesday. But by the time, you know, like eight o'clock, nine o'clock hit, Tuesday night, we were like, all right, time to go to bed. So I think we were asleep by nine, something, 8.30, something like that. And we were like, yeah, we'll wake up like pretty much, you know, even before The Mandalorian comes out because it comes out mid-morning or whatever in London. And LOL, we got up at like 10, 11. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> we were like, well, it doesn't matter. Like whatever. London's outside, but we got to watch, <laughs> watch Mandalorian, obviously. <laughs> Yeah, and the reaction from both of us of seeing uh, Jack Black and Lizzo is just something. First it was Jack Black, then it was Lizzo, and yeah. I was like, oh my God. I was sitting there, I was like, is that Jack Black? And then two seconds later, you went, is that Lizzo? <laughs> <laughs> it was so fun. This episode this episode had a lot of highs for me. Um, I think we'll talk about this, but the thematically, the episode was a little confusing for me, I'm going to be honest. But the wackiness of this episode, the procedural drama-ishness of it, I fully love. I By the end of it, I was like, I don't know, maybe I do need just like a full series of Din and Bo solving crimes across the galaxy of collecting keys, giant keys to random cities and planets. Like, sign me up, you know? Uh, so I... This was kind of the perfect episode, I think, to watch in a hotel room, you know, coming out of a 15-hour <laughs> sleep in a new country. It kind of worked perfectly, I think. Yeah, I agree. The beginning of it with the Corin and the Moncala forbidden love, forbidden ro- romance, I loved it. Thank you so much, Bryce. Mm-hmm. I feel like this whenever Bryce can, she throws in some sort of romance aspect. Mm -hmm. By the way, I'm with you about how I do find this whole sequence at the end of this episode to be a little thematically muddled. But I had a lot of thoughts about why we would start chapter 23 here in this small vignette of this captain and her forbidden love. And I, I feel... I feel like thematically, it's interesting to think about how this episode starts with a woman leader choosing to be separated from her love or like in order to kind of continue on her way. And it made me think of Bo. I don't really know how this is ever going to, if if it will ever be something that will reflect back. But oftentimes I find in The Mandalorian it does. And it was just something I put in my back pocket about, I wonder if this will have some sort of parallel in the future. I'm not saying that this is Bo and Din parallelism at all, but I wonder if it could be. I don't know. Yeah. With the uh, frog, frog lady and frog husband, I find that that thematically was to show, you know, building families and how important it is to 
uh, sacrifice everything in order to keep that family together. And I think that that builds into that's the Bryce's other episode, right? That builds into uh, the Din and Grogu relationship. So I wonder how this sort of will reflect back. I don't know if it does. It was super fun. But uh, yeah, Jack Black and Lizzo. Great. <laughs> I I think that there's also a lot of some things that the show is saying about how Jack Black's character, uh, Captain Bombardier, I think it is, uh, how he is from the rehabilitation program as well, which is something that has been introduced in the season of The Mandalorian and keeps coming back. And there's this real interesting theme going on throughout this entire season about rehab, about redemption, about a second chance. And I think even with the droid story, which we'll, we'll dive into, there is a sense of how does someone's rehabilitation redemption get interrupted by the ne'er-do-wells, the people who are loyal to uh, the past regime? How does that affect someone's own personal redemption? I think you see this with the droids and the nanodroids and Christopher Lloyd's characters uh, interfering with that whole program. And then also you see that obviously with Dr. Pershing. And I just wonder how this all has to do with our main character, Din Djarin and his own redemption or even Bo-Katan's redemption. I think this comes back in chapter 23, even with Bo-Katan and her own sort of how she sees her own redemption, because I think she feels a sense of guilt about letting Gideon take control of her planet and bomb it all to hell, right? She thought she was doing the right thing. She thought she was signing some sort of truce and it, it didn't happen. And so she feels a major guilt there. So I've been thinking a little bit about how there's a journey for her own redemption here too. Um, we even asked her that on our podcast when we talked to Katie Sackoff before and how I do find that there are just, the Mandalorian is trying, I think, to show how redemption and personal redemption is a long road and how a lot of different things can interfere with that, unfortunately. Well, and even the logistics of redemption, when we're talking about people like Jack Black's character and, and even like the whole rehabilitation program, yes. I think we've seen some of the the successes and pitfalls of that uh, as it relates to like Aliyah Kane's story and also Dr. Pershing's and and even Jack Black here uh, that I think yeah. we could call. I, I really appreciate, I'm really impressed actually that you have his character name because I didn't write it down in the notes. I just referred to them as Jack Black and Lizzo. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know their character names. It's, I, I'm pretty sure it's Bombardier. Yeah. I thought it was a fun name and it kind of works for him. It does. So that's why I remember it. It totally does. One thing I think is really cool is that they have that uh, people who go through this rehab program have that pin that they have on their jackets, yeah. right? And it's an A in Arabesh, which I think is fun because it's like a scarlet letter yeah. from the scarlet letter. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I think that it's cool that it's an A in Arabesh. And I don't know, that's sort of the signifier for the rehab program, but then also it's one of those things where people are calling out, I guess, their, the fact that they're a part of it. I don't know well, how I feel this, about that. There's but. this, like, that's what I, you know, the logistics of redemption, like what, 
Yes. You have the New Republic who wants to be better than the Empire, understands that there are people who just had to get by in the galaxy, so they were working for the Empire. What do you do with all of those people? Oh, okay, we put them through this rehabilitation program, you know, where this infrastructure we're providing for them, like everyone is kind of on probation, it seems. Like at what point will Jack Black get to take off the the Arabesh? letter <laughs> his right. own scarlet letter does he ever get to and and we hear in this episode that there are like sanctions against um you know the fact that jack black is an elected leader there are certain restrictions that their planet plazier 15 now have because he is their leader one of them being that they can't have a military uh on their planet so i i think that this episode in some ways did a better job of showing kind of another layer to this rehabilitation program and the ways that it is circumvented, uh, you know, kind of the whole setup of the episode rather than some of the the bigger, I wouldn't say the bigger themes, but, you know, thinking about Din and Bo and kind of what they were doing in this episode, especially like with the droids, a lot of that felt very muddled to me. I really enjoyed this aspect of it, of, you know, Jack Black and Lizzo understanding they have this problem. They figured out this whole way to get around it uh, in order to go around the New Republic. But, uh, you know, Plaza 15 is also, they're not technically a part of the Republic either, right? Don't they say that at the beginning mm -hmm. of the episode? So the fact that they're still kind of adhering. They're an independent system in the Outer Rim. Yeah, but they're still adhering to the New Republic's rules. You know, the fact that mm. um, they can't have an operating military. I don't know. It's just very interesting. And I I think you're on the right track that there is something here about this, this whole topic of redemption on a large scale, on a small scale with someone like Bo with someone like Din uh, as it relates to the Mandalorian and the Mandalorian culture and then also how, uh, you know, everyday people are going about, quote unquote, seeking redemption within mm -hmm. this new political infrastructure. And then, of course, we have characters like Aliyah who are faking it the whole way. Mm -hmm. it, it's mm -hmm. I, I think it's I'm excited to see where this all ends. And of course, you know, the, the topic of rehabilitation in the New Republic is not a one and done story, but the fact that they've kind of laid the groundwork, I think it gives a lot of room for new stories, honestly, on this topic within uh, this era of Star Wars that I think I think is really cool. And I'm glad it's something that we took time to explore in this season. Totally. I mean, I think redemption is obviously a conversation that we've had for six years on this podcast constantly. Mm -hmm. And I think it's always been in response to dark side users. Yeah. And I think we've th we've thought about it thematically and sort of in the hands of the audience and in the hands of fiction as well. And I think it's really cool that Star Wars is exploring it sort of bureaucratically. Yeah. <laughs> and how that all fits in with the post-Return of the Jedi world. And I don't think the story could be told in any other time period beyond post-Return of the Jedi. So it makes a lot of sense to me that this is being explored here. I'm aware that this is also something that is talked about in the books as well. Uh, not books that I've read, but I know that this is something that is talked about there. But I, I, I'm more interested in how it all relates to the story of Dinjarin and how that helps boost his narrative. Because I think that if 
as much as I've loved this season, I think that I do identify with the complaint that like the story has like shifted a little bit away from Din Djarin's own growth and arc. And I'm sort of willing to table that for a little bit as we get more um, exploration into the Mandalorian history and lore and figuring out, I don't know, answering a lot of questions that I've had for years about <laughs> what what should I really care about with regard to Mandalorian history? I think this season is doing that for me. And I still think that just to bring it all back, I think that eventually I'm curious to look at the season as a whole and apply it to Din's arc, I guess. And I, of course, I don't know what's going to happen in the finale in two days. Oh my gosh. <laughs> but I think that it'll be interesting to look back upon and just like I am with the love story in the beginning of this episode, I'm also trying to figure out how we place these many different components of redemption within this galaxy, within this time period. And I'm, I'm putting it in my back pocket to see how we can explore this even later. And I, I just think it's a smart move and I'm I'm happy about it. But Kaylin, I think that you should talk a little bit about I think we're dancing around the whole droid thing and I'd, I'd like for you to dive into some of your issues with it, positives, et cetera. Yeah. Um, the, I did want to add one more thing onto the redemption conversation because, I, and you kind of already said this a little bit, but this is a topic we've discussed at length on Sky Talkers. And, uh, you know, if you followed us for a long time, I think the the crux of that conversation was, of course, Kylo Ren leading into the rise of Skywalker and, and kind of everything that that could mean. And I know that we talked a ton at the time about how um, I don't, we didn't need the galaxy to redeem Kylo Ren. Um, and I think yeah. you mentioned this about it being from the audience's perspective of his redemption, that we didn't need mm -hmm. the the larger galaxy to redeem him because this is a personal story, a personal choice. And the Skywalkers are mythic level. So uh, they operate almost on an Olympian godlike level as it relates to the Star Wars story, I would say, and how Star Wars as a franchise treats the Skywalkers. Uh, and I totally. still maintain that, you know, I didn't, I don't need that in the future, you know, when Kylo Ben Solo comes back. <laughs> um, and I, I don't necessarily need that even when we're thinking about like our main characters of like Din and Bo. Uh, but I think that it is a great addition to this conversation of redemption to actually look at it bureaucratically and from an infrastructure point of view when we're talking about a complete uh, switch in political infrastructure. Sorry to say that again. <laughs> but uh, anyway, I just wanted to add that, that I think there there are different ways to have this conversation that serve a particular story. And with someone like Kylo Ren, Darth Vader, um, even, you know, Bo to a certain extent, I don't need the galaxy to forgive her. You know, it's it's me, it's the yes. audience and the people that she is closest with um, or that Kylo Ren and Darth Vader were closest with. Uh, it's their exactly. forgiveness and acceptance that I think carries the most weight for that story. Anyway, that's what I wanted to say. All right. So to your question about the droids and kind of, I think, some of my critiques, like I said, I'm fully in love with the wackiness of this episode. I 100% would take crime of the week <laughs> type of show with Din and Bo and Grogu in the IG-12 suit and more Jack Blacks and Lizzo's around the galaxy, <laughs> like 100%. But I think there were some weird aspects to this episode that 
didn't quite fit with me. And I don't think I fully thought about it when we saw it in London. But upon rewatching, I was like, I don't I don't really know what we're getting at here. Um, The first one, I kind of mentioned this at the top of the show, but, you know, about this military or this planet not having a military, but loopholing themselves into having a military, then also needing to hire Bo and Din. I think that kind of checks out with, you know, everything we've talked about with Jack Black and his rehabilitation and and how they ultimately do need some kind of defense. Um, But the thing that I thought was... I don't know, kind of went in a different direction initially was when they were talking about the citizens of the planet and how the citizens never have to work anymore. So the fact that the droids are seemingly rebelling, that would mean the citizens have to work and woe is me. The citizens can't work here anymore. This is what they've chosen to do. And I almost thought we were going to kind of go in like a Wally direction, you know, with the citizens and how it's actually bad for them that they never work anymore. But we didn't end up going in that direction at all. We kind of maintain the status quo. And I think this kind of leads into the other, I guess I would say confusing component of the episode was about the droids and particularly Din's relationship with the droids and the droids relationship with the citizens of Plazier 15. Um, I think it's, I honestly think it's really weird that we've come back to Din hating droids in such a, what I would call an extreme level in this episode. Yeah. Uh, like I get that IG-11 is kind of the only droid that Din would ever trust. And he's just kind of wary of all other droids. I can kind of accept that. Uh, but it, it did seem particularly cruel almost how Din kept taunting the droids that were working with the the battle droid and how he treated the bartender droid uh, at the droid bar. Um, it just didn't, it seemed a little out of character for me at this juncture in Din's journey, honestly. Um, and the fact too, uh, at the droid bar, the droid's confession about how they really love working for organic species was not at all expecting this, honestly. And this is honestly, I think, um, something that you're really passionate about in Star Wars, about droids' rights and such. And I think because we've had a number of stories about droids rebelling, about droids having a little bit more autonomy in the galaxy, that this felt almost like a little revisionist to have all the droids be like, no, like we love serving the people that don't work. Like we we're upset that these other droids are rebelling or that something is wrong with them. You know, it it felt, I don't know, it felt kind of off to me, Um, especially given that the droid bar, I I think its name is called the Resistor. Uh, That's what Mm -hmm. the bar is called. So it it seemed like an invitation for the droids to challenge some of how Plazier 15 works. And then when they were all in agreement of, nope, we're totally chill with this. Everything is a-okay. I don't know. It, it didn't, it didn't work for me, I, I don't think. I'm curious as to what you thought, because we haven't really talked about this yet. Um, I think Star Wars' relationship with droids these days is really weird. Mm-hmm. And I think with a character like L, the introduction of a character like L337, I feel like things were muddy already with that character. Like the introduction of her and her having total, near total autonomy. And then at the end of solo they like put her into Lock a ship her forever in the falcon yeah and like that's weird mm-hmm. because they introduced a character who makes choices for herself and for all intents and purposes is not really a robot and instead her own person and 
when I first saw Solo, I was like, this is awesome. And I think that this is a great direction that we go. But I think the Millennium Falcon inclusion, I think, could have been dealt with a lot more care. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that it shouldn't have happened because I still, I kind of, I still like that L3's brain, I suppose, or her mapping capabilities are a part of the Millennium Falcon. I just think it could have been done with a little bit more care. And I, I feel the same way about, I guess, the conversation about droids in this specific Mandalorian episode as well, in that I feel like it could be done with a little bit more care. I feel like just Star Wars, like, is it drawing a line in the sand, I guess, with <laughs> the conversation about droids' rights? It's so curious that droids have their own bar. And I think even in the original Star Wars 1977, there was already a distinct division between droids and humanoids, right, with that cantina scene. And I think Star Wars as a franchise has been trying to establish a sort of um, hierarchy about where in the timeline we are based off of how people treat droids. And I still feel like this doesn't really work for me either. However, I will say there is a nice sense about like a battle droid being reprogrammed for something else in a world in which they are valued. And I think that they're valued for their work, I guess, in this system, <laughs> which is not really freedom, but it's still not like they're I'm doing mental gymnastics is the point. <laughs> well, I mean, here. we've seen other droids be reprogrammed. I mean, famously K2OSL, right? This isn't yeah. the first time we've seen something like this happen. And it, again, it, it makes sense in the conversation of rehabilitation with the New yes. Republic. Like the New Republic, we've seen that the New Republic is completely uh, destroying the Imperial fleet. But they're kind of drawing a line at droids here. They're like, okay, we can... We can repurpose droids. Although, to be fair, I don't know if that's happening on other places or just mm -hmm. on Plaza 15 now that I'm saying this out loud. Regardless, this is something that is happening, has happened in other places. Yeah, I don't I don't know if I think Star Wars hasn't necessarily done a good job of how droids are treated as being an indicator of where we are in any particular timeline. And I think this kind of further muddles it. Um Honestly, you know, I, I'm I'm not the one that's going to be like, droids should all be completely autonomous in the galaxy. They obviously serve a purpose in the story of getting things done, of being, you know, similar to a, a pet for a lot of our main characters, for lack of a better word on how to describe them. But um, I don't know. I... Yeah, I think this almost kind of further confuses. <laughs> well, it's hard because in a lot of ways, C-3PO and R2-D2 were our first main characters in Star Wars. Yeah. And we follow them and we love them. But they're like but the they outlier don't... in how yeah. in droids around well, the galaxy. They're a, they're a narrator for all intents and purposes. In yeah. the original Star Wars, they're a framing device in a lot of ways. And I think... I don't know. I, I'm, I think I'm circling and I'm not – I think the, the struggle here is what you identified in the beginning of this conversation in that it's surprising that we go back to this aspect of Din being prejudiced towards droids. Yeah. Because I think we have grown – I thought we had grown a little bit beyond that with IG-11. Well, even with But R5. really it just turns out – yes, with R5, with IG-11, I thought that we had moved beyond it. But maybe – if I want to be generous, this is an indication that Din has not moved beyond his own trauma. It's not like he has 
uh, ever confronted a super battle droid. Like we've never seen a super battle droid and Din together. The only time we have is in his traumatic flashback, right? So I think of course he's going to be kicking these droids, but at the same uh. time, there is, I, I'm being generous. I'm being really generous. There is no real acknowledgement of that or any sort of growing and changing, I guess. Um, I think that we need to table this discussion for like a little bit later because I just think it's sort of a little nebulous. Like I, I don't really think this episode did a great job of explaining how I should feel about droids beyond, Oh, it's cool that there's a droid bar. Oh, it's interesting that they're like, it's funny that they're like screwing up and like throwing all those clothes everywhere. Like that's a funny little flashback, but I don't really, my opinion on droids rights has not really changed in this episode. Like I really thought it would. And that's, I guess, like slightly disappointing. Um, but I think that the main thing to take away is that there's a, not the main thing, but a main thing to take away is that Christopher Lloyd's character is someone who controls and controls droids and is able to instill even worse, smaller nano droids into their system to make them uh, change their function. And I think that, I think that'll come back later. Don't you think like this sort of idea that you could reprogram something based off of like a nano droid technology? Mm-hmm. Um, I was sort of theorizing that maybe this will come in to reprogram, um, those like crazy clone droid things that Gideon created at the end of season two of the Mandalorian. Yeah. Um, maybe that'll come back and as something that they can, that the Mandalorians or the good guys can use to figure that out. Cause they know that this technology exists, but at the same time, I just like kind of want to put a cap on this whole like droid discussion and say that I just don't really know if this was written in the way that it should have been for like in response to Din's own trauma and his opinions about droids. Like I think I started the episode knowing or thinking that Din would probably have a bad opinion of droids and then at the end nothing really changed you know I don't think he thinks any better of droids I don't really know where I stand with all of this and this worker economy of droids I think it's kind of weird and maybe I'm supposed to think that this entire system of Plazier 15 is weird but I don't no. (laughs) So (laughs) yeah I, I totally agree I would also say that I think it was a little confusing uh or kind of wrapped up so quickly about Christopher Lloyd's character and I I kind of don't really understand why he was doing this in the end is it just because he didn't like Jack Black and that Mm -hmm. he was used to be part of the empire um that's kind of the only reason I can glean and it ended with him being like well I hope one day you can forgive me Lizzo and it felt a little bit like I would have gotten away with it too if it wasn't for this meddling Mandalorian (laughs) (laughs) exactly but which is like it's kind of fine again because I it's enjoyable (laughs) I I loved the setup of this episode you know everything the fact that it's you know Epcot in space the Uh the you know the the monorail of it all um the like please keep your hands inside the vehicle (laughs) that's great I, I 
There's so many things that are so good about this episode. The, like the setup of let's the talk about castle, the the yeah. palace where the, where they are, the party. The, it just the walking into the party. Jack Black saying, "Take a little sip, sip. 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 I hope you like secretions." And Lizzo, I know a lot of people have been commenting on on Lizzo's acting, and I agree there were some parts that were better than others. But I loved how she's kind of you know, expositioning this history of Plazier 15 and then kind of without missing a beat, she goes, can I hold the baby? <laughs> it's perfect. And, and then, you know, of course, Din is like, well, I don't know, he doesn't like people. And then Croak <laughs> literally backflips to get a treat from Lizzo and is perfectly happy perfect. to be her her little pet for the for the episode. Um, I have to say, too, I, I love that there is zero consistency with whom Din will and will not leave Grogu with. <laughs> he literally takes him into war in the next episode <laughs> but leaves him behind with these people he's never met before. <laughs> it's great. It's great. <laughs> it's so funny and I just, Lizzo and Grogu was such a, a dynamic duo when they're playing the croquet or whatever and Grogu helps her win we see him you know force moving the ball just so cute I just I loved it so much me too and how about how Lizzo knighted Grogu at the end I think that there's something also thematic there about this reminder that Din in a lot of ways is a knight in shining armor Mm -hmm. and now Grogu is becoming one too Yes, and I love that. He has the chain mail. He he now has that insane circular necklace. Oh my god. <laughs> I don't even know. It's like a yeah. gauntlet, but it's too big for him. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But he has all of the workings of a knight, including Jedi past, too. Mm-hmm. And so I really liked this. I thought this was really cute. And also, it was very clear that Grogu was very proud of this. Yeah. And so were Bo and Din. And I really liked that. I think in a lot of ways, Bo and Din are becoming like co-parents for Grogu. Oh, I mean, Grogu was sitting on Bo's lap in the next episode. Chapter 23. Which, you know... Thinking about They've come so far, the, you know, the first <laughs> when when they're going to go rescue Din on Mandalore in the second episode or whatever, and Grogu is low key side eyeing Bo <laughs> and like kind of snarling a little at, a little at her. One of the other things is we got a Count Dooku mentioned in this episode, which was fantastic. You know, the count the Count Dooku stands population me they stay winning they stay winning. <laughs> really winning the past year or so i would say and uh yeah we saw a number of really good count dukus actually at celebration i was like they know they know <laughs> they've been fed this past year they really have <laughs> kind of one of the, the last things i can kind of feel us moving into chapter 23 which i think we should hear pretty soon uh and i think this kind of moves us into the next episode but uh dark saber loophole 101 i <laughs> I this just is so funny and kind of how ridiculous this is that I feel like they kind of wrote themselves into a corner a little bit with the dark saber and they're like, well, we gotta we gotta get Bo the dark saber, <laughs> and then Din suddenly appears with this like, oh, it's it's actually totally fine, and everyone is like, yeah, checks out. <laughs> I don't know. It's yeah. just it is like they needed to get Bo the dark saber, and they weren't gonna have her kill. Din, so I guess this works, but 
it was, it's kind of a weak, it's a loophole if you ask me. Uh, and I had to laugh that, you know, Din giving this story to the Mandalorians of why he's giving Bo the Darksaber, you know, she defeated the enemy that defeated me, really reminded me of, I wish I could wish away my feelings. Just very much like, oh, <laughs> uh, okay. <laughs> this, this writing. I think that it's, to me, I'm like, you know what, Din, I'm glad that you acknowledge that this is kind of dumb like this whole concept of you must kill or in order to receive it in battle and things like that and it's like yeah if you want to use this loophole use the loophole i'm glad everyone else accepted it this works well he now, did he did yeah. originally and and bob was like mm-hmm. no i can't i could never <laughs> he said like a number of times he's like we don't need it i think it's weird because I think Bo has actually had this story already before in Rebels. <laughs> so I of receiving the Darksaber being worthy for the Darksaber. Yeah. So if you're familiar with that storyline, you're like, all right, let's get her the Darksaber back. It's Din doesn't really need it. It's cool when he uses it. It, w- it would be cool if they could both use it somehow. But when you're familiar with that history, you're like, all right, just give her the Darksaber. She's worthy. I feel like y- the important thing here is Din actually thinks she's worthy. And we see that again in chapter 23 when he pledges to her for her song, for her entire life, basically. And I I think that there's a real recognition of partnership here and loyalty. And that's, I think, what's important here. And the fact that the rest of the Mandalorians accept this story... So often with The Mandalorian, there are talks about how it's the story that matters versus the act. And I think this is exactly one of those circumstances where, yeah, that works. <laughs> Axe Woves is like, that makes sense. Okay. And then there you go. <laughs> <laughs> it's, yeah, it was just kind of funny <laughs> that we finally got here. I think that's the question we've, uh, if you are familiar with Rebels, that a lot of us have been asking is this, we weren't following these rules and Rebels. Why are we following them now? And I am still asking myself the question, but ultimately I'm glad that Bo now has the Darksaber. Like we've moved past this. <laughs> All right, so now we're officially in Chapter 23, The Spies, directed by Rick Famuyiwa. And the spies, plural. And this is this is the thing that I think everyone has been talking about online since this episode has officially aired, is spies, plural. Because I think we know Alaya is our first spy, Alaya Kane. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. we've got a lot of questions about who the second spy is that I think we'll kind of be talking about as we move through this episode. Uh, but we do start this episode with Alaya. And who does she contact? None other than Gideon. And Gideon's back, baby. Gideon is back, baby. And I've said it before. <laughs> I'll say it again. My biggest critique of The Mandalorian <laughs> has got to be the lack of Giancar- Giancarlo Esposito and Gideon. They underutilize this man. And he is so good. <laughs> So good. I love him. And we, we've been talking about, you know, w- where this season kind of ends. And uh, if it does end with Gideon dying, potentially, and you and I were both like, no, because we can't say goodbye to Giancarlo. <laughs> Gideon has to live. He must live because he's like the best villain. And I just want him to be forever in the Mandalorian seasons, but also 
he's awful. And now he has Din in his custody. I hate it. <laughs> so he's the best, but also the worst, you know? And I think this meeting was insane. This hologram meeting, we get dad Hux. Um, <laughs> I can't believe we got Hux's dad in this. And he just is so not it. I don't know. He's just so smug. And, uh, Gideon mentions Project Necromancer, and then he goes on to say to Hux that uh, the creation of clones is Hux's obsession, not Gideon's. And I feel like Project Necromancer has to refer to Palpatine, right? Like, yeah. what the heck? It has, it has to. to it has to be how are they going to bring Palpatine back and everything like that. I just because uh, Necromancer and necromancy has to do with the dead, right? I feel like that makes sense but then there's also a lot of there's a lot that happens in this conversation okay oh yeah there's a mention of Thrawn and how everyone's waiting for his imminent return uh I think we're setting up for the Ahsoka storyline but at the same time like will Thrawn come into the Mandalorian like what the heck are people working for Thrawn it feels like people are just waiting around for Thrawn's return too and I mean literally same but I <laughs> I feel like they're they're waiting for something that is just not happening, which Gideon calls them out on about like, we haven't even heard from him. It's you guys are waiting basically um, with no word about when he will be back and with what he will be back with. Right. So Gideon gets to assume a lot of power in this situation based off of the fact that nothing is really happening. So I thought this was a really cool cold open with ending on Long Live the Empire. I I don't know. Bad guys being bad really make me. Yeah, they're really really, really make, being bad. Really bad. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there was a lot of information in this cold open between, you know, what Aliyah is telling Gideon, what Gideon does and doesn't already know about the Mandalorians and what he then relays to this group of other imperial officers uh you know they're talking about things like the, one of them says the new republic is weak we must be cautious and show no sign of our true strength they talk about plundering hyperspace lanes how they want to be perceived as an unorganized group they even talk about how the citizens are already tired of the new republic's rules and regulations you know how true is that i don't know but we've definitely seen a lot of I wouldn't say the dark underbelly of the New Republic, but definitely the cracks in the New Republic uh, in some of the some of the other uh, chapters from this season of The Mandalorian. So uh, they're not entirely off base, but there's definitely the feeling of the Empire, the, these remnant Imperials are lying in wait until they can fully strike. And this is something that I think everyone was talking about when we had Dr. Pershing's episode of how the New Republic completely, and what we said earlier too, of how they destroy the Imperial fleet. So then when when the First Order, sorry, I couldn't think of what they were called for a second. <laughs> when the First Order rises up, they've been accumulating all of this weaponry and ships and a whole fleet. And we even see in the Rise of Skywalker, you know, the final order, everything that's lying in wait out on Exegol. Uh, so they they are building an armada and the New Republic is destroying theirs. And that definitely sets them back uh, when the First Order does kind of fully emerge, I imagine. So I, I think this was a really information heavy kind of uh, cold open. And I remember turning it on again uh, when I was rewatching it. 
uh, for the second time. And I was just kind of half watching it. Um, I wasn't like ready to like start taking our notes or anything, but I was like, man, I really need to pay attention. <laughs> There's a lot being talked about in this and, and I need to sit down and kind of write it all out. This episode said sequel trilogy rights with it the really Praetorian did. guards, with the Hux inclusion. I, I don't know, with the setting up of the First Order, with understanding how things are all being laid in place. I mean, I think it's really cool that the Mandalorian is doing this and including these things because, again, we need these reminders of where we are in the timeline. It's confusing and it makes a lot of sense that this is where we would be when things are sort of scattered and bureaucratically mismanaged. And mm-hmm. yeah, so I I really liked this beginning and Gideon's back and it's so good. But let's talk about how when the cruiser comes above Navarro, it's so cool that there's that Mandalorian uh, mythosaur mark on the bottom of that cruiser. And it's funny because I think in our notes, you're like, how much paint did that take? <laughs> and I always think about how our logo, our podcast logo is the Death Star with Sabine's uh, rebel insignia on it. Jeez, that must be and so much paint. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so I think we have two occasions where that's just a lot of paint. You know? <laughs> so it's, I, I, I don't know. <laughs> one of those weird times about thinking about the 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 day-to-day logistics of the galaxy. I think one of the last times I kind of really thought about this at a mundane level was when we were talking about Captain Rex and where he gets his box hair dye from. Like how often is he dyeing his hair blonde, you know? And uh, you know, this. How are how are they painting this? Where are they getting all this paint? They were like, you know what? Yes, line item in the budget, five thousand gallons of paint, this shade of maroon for the bottom of the extra light cruiser and yeah i agree it's so extra and uh, a perfectly good use of of their their limited funds (laughs) so we got grogu getting a mech suit and that mech suit (laughs) is formerly ig11 now ig12 and man i think we mentioned this at the top of the show but this killed in the audience people were dying including ourselves i mean the no button the yes button why are no buttons and yes buttons so funny for characters who like (laughs) don't really speak that much they're always so good and i think i saw some tweet i think it was holly frey who said that grogu has entered his terrible twos (laughs) and i think that's exactly how this scene played to me first i love the babu frick standoff the no squeezy I can't get enough I'm still bitter that I didn't get the no squeezy shirt at celebration I know you are too Mm -hmm. it sold out by the time we got to the store it's really sad it's very sad but it's okay um (laughs) it's okay but that I mean that standoff is hilarious and then when Grogu gets in his ears are all uh, I don't know they barely fit now (laughs) he barely I know but it's so cute and funny and I think in the beginning, I was like, I don't know if I like this just because I, I'm i hesitant towards change, I guess, when it comes to Grogu being adorable. But I really, I really liked this and I thought it was really funny. And I think I've seen people speculate that that no and yes button will be used probably when like tragic things are happening because we're laughing now. But no, how no. will it be turned on its head? No, no, you know no, what, I Kayla? am the no button. No, no, no. <laughs> No. <laughs> no. Uh, yeah. So I I, th- <laughs> I think right now it's funny, but I, I think eventually it's probably not going to be funny. Um, 
Yeah. Yeah. I got to say this whole scene was just like you said, it killed in the audience. It killed again when I was just watching it with just me. It was so funny. Um, the comedic timing of Din and uh, Grief and Grogu and the uh, Babu Frick, other species. Uh, I'm sure that's not his name. It was just, it was so funny. And I got to say, my favorite line from it was Din, you know, after <laughs> Grogu tries it out, they see that he fits in there and Din goes, Grogu is too young to operate heavy machinery. I just, I don't know why this line tickles me so much. The deadpanness with which Pedro delivers it, of it was like, of course. And it, it sounds like such an instruction booklet, you know, again, like how, who is talking about operating heavy machinery so casually? And I don't know, it's just so matter of fact of Grogu is too young to operate heavy machinery. And that's, that's all there is about it. Maybe when he's older, <laughs> he it's can perfect. operate heavy machinery. <laughs> it's perfect. It was it was just so funny. And I'm so tickled by that line and that grief. I think that I tweeted about this and someone had responded uh, that grief is basically like the uncle that's giving presents that he probably shouldn't be giving to a small child. <laughs> and Din is just, uh, Grogu is like, yep, this is mine now. And now he's like stronger kind of than. <laughs> And in, which is hilarious. <laughs> Definitely more mobile. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, you know, later we see that uh, when Din, before they do kind of the final siege approach uh, mm-hmm. on Mandalore, mm-hmm. when he tells Grogu, he's like, you've got to keep up now. And he, like, zooms ahead and Grogu is kind of in the back, but he's, you know, he's he's trotting along. <laughs> I feel like that takes a level of trust that we've never seen with Din that I think needed to happen with Grogu. I've been a, a big proponent of making sure we're tracking this character development with Grogu and his him getting older. And yeah, I think he this is an example of him coming into his own. And obviously we end this episode with a separation between Din and Grogu. I thought this season was going to end with that, honestly. Still could. But it still could. You're right. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess it's, I think, make no mistake that Grogu gets stronger, gets an ability to walk fast (laughs) and operate heavy machinery, I guess, uh, by the time that Din is separated from him. I think that makes sense in his character arc and his journey. And he's really come so far. It's giving him a lot more independence that he might need in the future. And, you know, even we were kind of laughing about this in whatever episode it was when uh, he's left behind with the armor and the armor just walks ahead and, for some reason, Grogu doesn't have his little pram and he's like shuffling <laughs> after yeah. the armor. And we were talking about how funny it is that no one picks him up or, or rings him his pram or something. And I'm sure it just takes him so long to get from point A to point B. Right. Uh, and he definitely had a lot of independence, I think, with his pram. But he, there's another. He's still in a carriage. Yeah, he's still in a carriage, and if that it that is more easily taken, I think, than IG twelve now. So yeah, I was trying to think a little bit because I think in my Mandalorian rewatch rewatch before this season, I was noting how thematically I found IG eleven to be in a lot of ways like the mother figure for Grogu in season one, and. I think there's no mistake that like it was and I this is a little muddled of course but Nit, Din and IG11 were like present when Din 
you know, makes contact with Grogu in that first episode. Yeah. And then later, IG-11 sacrifices himself for Grogu after, like, taking such care of him being the nurse droid that Quill reprogrammed him to be. And I think it's, I don't, I, again, I don't really know how to wrestle with this, but I was thinking about it a little bit and it's just something I am like sort of tracking and putting a pin in, in that now Grogu has like become a part of this like nurse droid, right? Yeah. And has sort of assumed that I guess whatever he could possibly learn from like a character that would be his mother, I guess, is that's sort of how I'm wrestling it in my brain. I know that sounds a little weird, but he's now, he's growing up. And I think that this is interesting to, I think it's, it's, it's one way to look at it in that he has like assumed the traits from what he learned from his nurse droid, who was a big like piece of Grogu's own development in which we know this character from season one. And now he's become that, you know? And I don't, again, I'm still working this out in my brain, but it's just something I'm tracking. (laughs) Yeah, I think all it makes me think about is really what that independence is going to mean for him as we move into the finale and what he will or will not be able to do with it. We talked, touched on this a little earlier, but one of the critiques of this season has been that it's it's definitely moved away from Din and I would say away from Grogu's story, but mostly from Din as a character. I, I wouldn't say we've really had a lot of character development with Din in this season, especially mm-hmm. thinking about last episode with, you know, the droids of it all. He's kind of become a secondary character to Bo-Katan um and what she's been doing which you know i take it as you will i think there's pros and cons to that approach of of the mandalorian as a title being able to use that title in reference to a bunch of different characters you know which i think we'll talk about that a little later as far as like where the season as a whole has moved but uh you know this really has been bo's season i would say if i were to like give it a hierarchy it would be bo grogu din uh of as far as like screen time and character development so it kind of make me makes me think about what if any kind of big moment we'll have with Grogu at the end of this season because we have kind of had a lot of development with him this season really kind of at the beginning and end I would say of the season of him doing things on his own he had like a little mission or two by himself really one at the beginning of the season with rescuing Din but his own like confrontation of his trauma and his past and if we're going to continue to get one kind of culminating moment uh, at the end of the season or if that will belong to um, does it belong to Din? I guess it could still, but it feels like that that big moment at the end of the season with how the season has tracked should probably go to Bo or Grogu. Yeah, I think it could happen with all three. I'm not, I think this the show can do that, but I... Yeah, they could all get one. Anyway, let's uh, let's talk about the other Mandalorians that we come across on Mandalore. Uh, there's more Mandalorians still on Mandalore. Pirate ship Mandalorians. Th- this, oh, this was such a cool ship. Uh, so they really cool. knocked it out of the park with the, <laughs> the non-romantic ships of, <laughs> of this show. <laughs> and this one was just, it was so cool. I really loved how it felt like... A, a pirate ship and this is now kind of our second pirate ship we've had um we also didn't talk about this but with the uh Quarren and Moncala the captain at the beginning of the last episode 
the fact that she had kind of a, a tank over her command center mm-hmm. was so cool. Really love that design. So cool. But mm-hmm. we we come across more Mandalorians here who are searching for food and recognize Bo's voice, which I was really surprised at. I thought this was a, a cool detail of, you know, oftentimes I think we think of Star Wars as for as technologically advanced as it is, it sometimes still operates uh, almost like it's an antiquity in some ways. And I think especially the way that the Mandalorians are written as this like ancient uh, race, ancient culture, and how, uh, you know, the way that they speak is very sometimes I think antiquated, especially with the children of the watch. Uh, so for to imagine these other Mandalorians kind of, I guess, having a recording of Lady Bo that they still listen to, still recognize. I think is a neat detail and that they recognize her voice immediately and, you know, are still loyal to her. Uh, I feel like must be a good boost of confidence considering Bo has kind of said repeatedly how she doesn't think she's able to lead um, all of that kind of stuff, you know, that boost of confidence and any sort of camaraderie, I think gets her to finally admit that she did surrender to Gideon and then that sort of admittance, I think, gets Din to finally sort of pledge himself, not sort of, definitely pledge himself to Bo-Katan. And he says, what means more to me is honor and loyalty and character. These are the reasons I serve you, Lady Kreese. Your song is not yet written. I will serve you until it is. Um, honestly, these felt like marriage <laughs> vows to me and I'm very like on high alert for that in Star (laughs) Wars I guess Uh, and I don't I just really like the fact that Bo and Din have spent so much time together in the season and how we're finally culminating I guess in if we want to talk about Din's character and I feel like his character arc and his development I think him recognizing and coming around on Bo's thinking and way of life and who she is and who she represents to Mandalorians and how that is actually different from his own Children of the Watch clan that he was with is a huge development that I think needs to be acknowledged. I don't know what it looks like in practice because he's captured at the end of this, but the fact that he has now, like, I don't really know what this means. Like, does this mean that he doesn't really call, think of himself as like part of uh, Children of the Watch anymore? I mean, technically uh, Bo was also part of that clan too, but now she is more than that, and he is pledging himself to her. So, <laughs> yeah, no, I agree. You're right. This is like a big piece of development for Din. And I have to say, I loved this whole speech that he gives Bo uh, for as kind of funny and kind of bad writing as the. She defeated the enemy that defeated me, ergo the Darksaber is hers, was. I think this speech was really lovely from Din. Uh, This pep talk he kind of gives her of we'll rebuild our history. For thousands of years, we've been on the verge of extinction. And for thousands of years, we've survived. And then the, the last part where he says, your song is not yet written. I will serve you until it is. I... I love this line. I love the sentiment behind it. It does sound like a marriage proposal, but that kind of fealty is, he's like the song, someone's song will be written after they die. 
uh, that's Teaser when your night. yeah your that's when your song will be written uh, because it'll be the mythology the legend that you leave behind um, and you know he's saying I'll serve you until I can't any longer and I, I think that's really beautiful and I really liked this piece of writing here in this speech and it worked Pedro delivered it uh, beautifully I think their song will be written together honestly that's cute. <laughs> we'll see. I I don't know if I'm a shipper of them. I feel like I've been kind of leading on it you in have. the specific podcast episode. But I feel like the show's giving me a lot of reasons to like want to see more of them together. I think they spent a lot of time together this season. So like I think they're in a lot of ways like Grogu's parents now. And I just I don't know. I I like it. I like <laughs> so. it too. I don't I don't sense any romantic tension between them as of yet. But I don't think that there needs to be romantic tension. I think it's like nightly for them to be well, it's almost like a knight like serving his queen. Yeah, you know, I exactly, and I like I feel that, and I like that. I do too. I don't see it as romantic though, not right now. But you know, you could. I, oh, absolutely! I'm ready to jump on the ship immediately. You know, I'm I'm <laughs> I'm pushing off the dock. I will push off the dock. You know, pull the anchor, whatever it is. I don't see the reason quite yet for a full blown romantic ship, but. You know, just give me a little tease, and I'm there 100. percent You don't have to ask me twice. I don't think this. I think is a this is a tiny little tease. I don't think so. Okay. Um, okay. Okay. <laughs> it is knight to queen, and yeah. uh, I think that can be a romantic pairing, obviously. Mm-hmm. But I don't. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't see it. I think if we didn't have the helmet on, I think I might see it more. But <laughs> <laughs> well. I think that the helmet is going to be, I think I said this in the beginning of the season, is going to be forcefully removed from his head by Gideon or someone. I think that we've seen the helmet be removed from Din as a personal choice throughout the past end of each of the past two seasons. And sort of in his story, I think it's about time someone crosses that line and removes it for him. And then we are sort of uh, because now we've built up this respect, I think, throughout this entire season for the Mandalorian culture. It's not that we didn't have that before, but it, this it's sort of what we're leading to of like, how dare they do that? It's very violating, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think that that would be, it's not that I, I want bad things to happen to Din. I just feel like that is kind of where we're leading in terms of his helmet being taken off. Because to me, it's kind of surprising that we spent this entire season so far with his helmet on. And I know that that has a real world um, occurrence because Pedro was filming The Last of Us during the filming of this season. And also, um, it's worth noting that in chapter 23, it is Pedro who is in the suit and you can tell because he has his visor is like a little bit bigger so we could see. So I sort of think that we're getting there. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) it is funny. It's great. But I think we're, I think where the point is we're getting there. I think there are pieces where next episode we'll probably see his face, but under what circumstance, you know, I think we're, we really want to see his face, but how are we as the audience going to feel when it's removed? And I guess, um, I should also note that when his helmet was removed in season one, he got hurt, you know, and IG-11 helped him. So maybe that was sort of a forceful removal, but he did agree because... It was a theater, uh, a droid. It's not a, droid, a living right? character, yeah. 
Exactly. So it's not like IG-11 like yanked it from his head. It was <laughs> IG-11 it was a really choice. given the dark saber loophole to Din in that moment. <laughs> exactly. That's this entire show is filled with loopholes and I kind of love that. <laughs> yeah, I absolutely thought that the troopers, I don't know what kind of the imperial troopers i don't know what special kind they are uh dark troopers is, are they dark troopers or is only gideon in the dark trooper suit i don't know anyway i definitely thought that they or gideon was going to forcefully remove din's helmet it's coming in that moment it is and i was kind of surprised that they do this whole you know de-arming of din and then didn't take the helmet from him as well mm. um I do wonder now that we were talking about that moment with IG-11 from season one, if we could have a repeat where it's IG-11, but IG-12 and Grogu, who... Oh, my God. Yeah. Um, but, you know, thinking about... Okay, so a lot of people right think that the armorer is the other spy, right? I do think the armorer is the other spy. So if the armorer is the spy, then is everything she stood for kind of null and void? At that point, mm-hmm. uh, as she was kind of the, you know, Din says to to Bo earlier that, you know, the Darksaber didn't mean anything. They don't care about station or bloodline in the Children of the Watch. It's all about uh, honor, right? But we had the armorer kind of use her station to uh, persuade Bo into taking her helmet off and, you know, going forth on this new mission, right? She asks Bo, do you respect my station? So if Din removes his, if Din's helmet is removed and he is then told that the armorer potentially has betrayed all of them and he's kind of signed this new loyalty to Bo, who obviously doesn't care about the helmet thing, will he loophole himself into, all right, I guess I don't have to put this thing back on? I think so. I think so too. I think, so if we think that the armorer is the spy, so I I do. If if we think, let's just back up. The title is The Spies. We know that Aliyah is one of the spies. Why is it plural? Why did the armor remove herself from the planet? Mm-hmm. When And why is everyone so confused about the Empire having a den, basically a lair on Mandalore? No one knew that this was a thing. And it's sort of like, okay, so who could have? And if they were going to have a spy, it's probably the person that... Uh, encouraged number one all the mandalorians getting together in one place to retake mandalore so that they're all together right which is the armor and then the armor removes herself from the planet before they even get anywhere close to this den this lair and i think in a lot of ways we've spent time on this podcast talking about what are the transgressions of why we think of the children of the watch as a quote unquote cult why are we so quick to be like, this group is bad for Din. In a lot of ways, I think we can, we have traced it back to the armorer, number one, kicking Din out when he took off his helmet and instilling the old ways, number two, instilling the old ways of the clan, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and all of that actually goes back to the armorer. When you think about it, we when we were talking about it before, we were talking about the group as a whole, but really it's the leader. <laughs> so <laughs> it's sort of why, who is she the leader? Why do we know absolutely nothing about her? Why does she not have a name? Why does she have um, 
mall like horn on the top of her like a Zabrak horn on the top of her helmet similar to those previous Mandalorians who had those Zabrak horns on their helmet when they were during the um oh what's it called oh Jesus Nine of a thousand years. During the Clone Wars, when there was the siege on Mandalore and Maul was trying to lead the siege on Mandalore and that whole situation, there was Mandalorians who followed Maul there too. And their helmets look similar to the armorers. And then also, why does Gideon also have that similar Zabrak horn on the top of his helmet, which we just saw in this episode for the first time? And all of these things all kind of go together where it's like, we know so little about the armorer she's probably not to be trusted and all of this possibly could just be them pluralizing the title and we're all <laughs> working herself into a tizzy but if I were to put money on it it would be the armor for me no it the thing is they to make it plural and for it to not actually be plural is stupid I will be upset <laughs> if it is just and a everything- lie. <laughs> every right, every title for the Mandalorian has a double meaning. Even the title, the Mandalorian itself, is it? Does it refer to Din? Does it refer to Grogu? Does it now refer to Bogtan? Like, mm-hmm. who does it refer to? And we talk about this every time with these titles that are the blank, and they it always has a double meaning. So, what is the double meaning here? And how? Did Gideon know that they were all going to be here? And why did Gideon collect here specifically? Who, another crazy question, when the New Republic fighter noticed that there's that abandoned ship with the... Beskar alloy. Yes, the the Beskar alloy like inside of the ship, when they noticed that, what does that mean? Who could have broken him out? And like, what if it was someone from the armor? Like, I don't know. And who has access to that? The armor who can understand the forge, right? I also thought that thematically, I thought it was curious how every time that they're in the forge, they, Grogu experiences his past trauma, Din experiences his past trauma, and uh, then they're in this, like, the Great Forge, and what do you know, there's a traumatic thing that happens right after (laughs) that. And the armor is not there, and it's sort of like, what, okay, I don't know, am I supposed to link these two things, because we have the armor who sort of operates the forge, also, why was the armor alone in the end of season one down in the empty in the empty uh, cellars of of Navarro when all the Mandalorians were like killed and chased out of Navarro in their hiding space? Why was she left? And I don't I don't know. I I just I mean, it's suspicious. Are we going to get like a big villain speech from her tomorrow? Or I mean, that would be so Wednesday? cool. I do. I'm curious to see what the motivation is. Is it that she actually doesn't want Bo to lead? That she wants all other Mandalorians that don't follow the way, the 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 helmet way? I guess I should say. Uh, to she wants to take them all out, you know. I think. Yeah, I don't understand the motivation. Yeah, so that's I the thing. Think, I'll be honest. It's still really hard for me sometimes to follow Mandalorian culture slash history and and all these factions. It's getting clearer though. I think that, and then. <laughs> 
something new happens and I'm confused all over again. I think I just have to accept that it's never going to be super clear to me until the day that Dave slash Bryce releases the fun little timeline thing, which is never going to happen. But (laughs) I... I think it's the armor too. When we were when we were watching the episode, I leaned over to you and said, "I think it's the armor," and you were like, "What?" I was shook. Yeah, and then we got out and we were sitting with uh, Brandon and his wife Maggie from Talking Bay ninety four, and they were both like, "It's the armor." <laughs> we were like, "Okay, okay, cool." Um, and then I was on board. <laughs> yeah, uh, I I think this makes a lot of sense, but I'm also like, what if it's someone else? But I don't know who else it would be that wouldn't feel like someone kind of completely coming out of left field in the ninth hour kind of thing, which I suppose they could do. But I, I don't know. I'm very interested to see who the other spy is. Like I said, if it just turns out to be Alaya and this kind of doesn't go anywhere else, this title, I'll... That's dumb. I'm sorry. It's dumb. (laughs) Just call it the spy (laughs) then. Even then, to call the whole episode the spy and have it only refer to Alaya when she's kind of just in that front cold open section would feel Mm -hmm. kind of like, okay, did we just run out of ideas for what to call this episode? (laughs) So it feels like there's got to be there's got to be a spy within the Mandalorian ranks. I think for the title to really kind of hit home uh, with this episode. But yeah, I, I agree. It feels like it's the armor. She got herself off planet. Someone, the, the feeling I've always gotten is that no one else can create Beskar armor except for the armor. She's the only one who's kind of trained in this traditional craft. So who is making the Beskar armor for these dark troopers. Uh, Mm. Beskar is Mm. only found on Mandalore, right? So I guess potentially Gideon, they mentioned that they're harvesting uh, Beskar from Mandalore, I think. They say it's something like a resource or something like that. Yeah. So I guess potentially they could just be harvesting it off Mandalore and doing it themselves uh, because we've actually touched on this is that it feels like the children of the watch have no transportation. (laughs) So if it is the armorer, is she leaving in the non-existent ship to go construct this armor for Gideon and co is she making it in their forge and then he's picking it up secretly? I guess they could be doing that. So there are a lot of questions I have. I, the only motivation I can think of at this moment is that the armor is actually trying to take out all other Mandalorians that don't walk the way that she walks the way. <laughs> they don't walk the walk or talk the talk. <laughs> That's kind of the biggest motivation I can find right now and that she actually does want to take Bo out. She's been playing the long game, which a lot of our villains tend to do. <laughs> Famously, Palpatine. <laughs> so famously. famously. So I can definitely see this path for the armor. And yeah, I'm I'm ready to find out if it is her, to find out her motivation, and to find out how our heroes one up her because they have to one up her, right? Just say this is true. If it's not, this will be really a, a funny segment, but <laughs> I do I think it calls into question so much of her followers and I think that we could get a helmet removal 
what I really wanted in the season, which is a, hel- a group helmet removal from everyone. Yeah. We, so we we'll, were talking we'll see. in a group chat about kind of the craziest ideas of who the armorer could be. And I think you said actually, you're like, what if it was Satine? <laughs> and wouldn't that just, I don't think it's Satine. Satine is. I, did, I didn't say that. I didn't say that. It but. would be insane. <laughs> Well, I I was like I think it would be crazy if it was Rook cast. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. who is was voiced by Vanessa Marshall in the last season of The Clone Wars. Um, I don't think that that needs to happen. I think that's sort of an obscure reference, and I think you'd have to do a lot of like build up for that. But I do think that that she was already a dissenter towards like the other Mandalorians, so it sort of makes sense to me. She like worked with Maul, um, but and she's a woman, so I don't mm-hmm. know. I feel like. It sort of would make a little bit of sense, but I don't even know if like if we learn the identity of the armor, if it really like even matters as much as it, it matters if where her loyalties lie. Yeah. You know? I almost wondered what if she isn't actually even a Mandalorian? Or what if she's been faking yeah. it this whole time? Right. That's the other thing because and then that's why the helmet is always supposed to be on, yeah. why they really force that, why she forces that, because if she did take off her helmet, it would expose who she actually was, which would be like so crazy if that were true, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I it would add another meaning to the helmets being on. Yeah. It would kind of surprise me if that was the route they took with her, but it is something that I found myself thinking a lot about of what if she's actually not Mandalorian or even a foundling and it's obvious who she is to the other people and that's why she has to keep her helmet on. It yeah. Be very interesting, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, exactly. One thing too in this in this standoff uh, that we haven't touched on is Gideon's whole little his own little villain speech where he talks about the contributions from certain groups of people and how he's using them to his advantage. He says the cloners, the Jedi, the Mandalorians. By aggregating the best of each, I will create an army that will bring order to the galaxy. And I'm just saying. Four sensitive clones. We've been talking about this for ages now. <laughs> and it feels like that's kind and of so is Gideon. So is Gideon. So is Gideon. <laughs> <laughs> so he's gonna put his four sensitive clone inside a Beskar suit armor and they're gonna be unstoppable. And they did, I will say they did do a little the camera shot was on Grogu when he said the cloners Jedi. And then I think the camera goes back to Gideon, where he says the Mandalorians by aggregating the best of each, blah, blah, blah. So that was just a a little note. Obviously, Grogu is our Jedi, but you know, I think there's still a lot to be said about the clone component of it, honestly. And this is something that has uh, been really fun to track alongside of The Bad Batch this past season. If you're not watching The Bad Batch, you absolutely should. It's a fantastic show. And uh, they've been, especially season two, has touched a lot on this topic of cloning and the Kaminoans and all of that, which has also been at play in this season of The Mandalorian. So they've gone together very nicely and I don't know. I really liked uh, bringing this story of cloning uh, a little bit more to the forefront in both of these shows in Star Wars. I think it's been a really welcome, you know, such a huge part of the prequel trilogy and then became a really big part of the sequel trilogy with Palpatine. And so for them to kind of see that as an opportunity of, okay, we can like really lay the groundwork for this Palpatine thing that comes up later down the line and really making it, you know, 
completely fleshing it out, I think, has been really great to see. And I'm excited for more. I always feel like they're kind of dancing, not dancing around it, but we never see completely into the cloning facilities and stuff like that. I think Bad Batch got really close and I think we'll explore that in even more detail in season three of the Bad Batch, but I'm ready to like fully see (laughs) the inner workings of the cloning, the Jedi, that like all of it, the aggregation of everything. And, you know, Gideon's been talking about it for a long time and so have we. (laughs) I think we'll get it with any sort of explanation into what Project Necromancer mm-hmm. is. I think we'll get that. Yeah. It definitely okay, so- feels like, sorry, uh, if you remember, you know, after The Last Jedi, uh, how we were always talking, because they talked about this in the Last Jedi novelization, which been a minute since we brought up The Last Jedi novelization. We used to talk about it like every episode. Uh, the Palpatine's contingency plan. It feels like we were always talking about that and things were leading to Palpatine's contingency plan. And it feels like now we're actually, this is part of the contingency plan is everything that has to do with cloning really uh, throughout these shows like The Bad Batch and uh, The Mandalorian. And I imagine what we'll continue to see in, you know, other shows like The Ahsoka Show and even in the future with the Dave Filoni movie. So I'm, I'm here for it. Me too. You know what I'm not here for? <laughs> the death of Paz. I can't believe this happened, even though I called it. You spoke <laughs> in our last discussion. I don't blame you. I and I remember being like, I just have a feeling, and you were like, No, <laughs> no, I don't feel that. And I'm like, I do. And it happened. And the sacrifice was too much. I was crying. It's funny when we left um, the screening at Celebration. I was walking out there with like tears in my eyes already being like, that was so good. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Play it again, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> and it's, just, it's great how they really built up this character of Paz as a father, as a protector, as a Mandalorian, as someone who his sacrifice like meant a lot. And I <sighs> felt like they this was done really well. It was shot really well. It was so violent. And also we need to talk about the Praetorian Guards we really saw how absolutely brutal the Praetorian guards are. Mm -hmm. We knew this, but it really shows how absolutely powerful Kylo and Rey were in The Last Jedi too. So I really liked that connection. Again, sequel trilogy rights, love that. But the Paz sacrifice, I think, was a really big and emotional moment for me in this episode. And I don't know, I felt like we really left things in dire circumstances. I mean, that last shot is him, his body just like left there. Sunking to the ground. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it really, it's a dark image to end the episode on. And it makes me think of, okay, so wow, some of our Mandalorians got away. Grogu and Bo-Katan specifically. Din is now taken by Gideon. Are we going to get see Din experience the mind flayer in the same way that Pershing did because oh my god if that happens ah that's terrible Mm -hmm. so I don't Mm -hmm. (laughs) I don't know I think it's really sad because with Paz we really built up seeing him be such a father figure to Ragnar and I feel really sad that what's going to happen to the foundling now I don't know I was I really didn't like this it made me really sad and it was super violent his death it, it i think 
for for me, I don't it was almost like gratuitous how long this fight went on. I think it was a great fight and maybe I'm just like a little too sensitive now, but I was like, wow, they're really they really stabbed him like a number of times. Mm-hmm. And I was I was super sad. I everything you said about they've really built Paz up this season and you know, when he got the talking stick in support of Din, you know, going back to Navarro and all of that, I think we were all very moved by that moment and seeing the length he went to to get Ragnar back uh was really touching and I love the I don't know if we talked about it, but the scene when they finally got Ragnar back and they're like hanging off the side of the cliff and Paz just like pulls Ragnar to him and you can tell it's like a very real moment like the way the kid like slides across the cliff face and is like (laughs) hugging Ragnar and is like I'm so glad like are you okay it's just a really sweet moment and yeah I'm I'm very sad about this and he definitely went out like a hero and I'm sad about it and yeah, it was definitely a quite the note to leave the penultimate episode on. And I'm definitely nervous about what is going to happen. You know, they've said that, you know, John and Dave have said that they would continue making The Mandalorian for seasons on seasons. And I think people definitely kind of critiqued this a bit online about them not having a plan. But this was before we had the reveal of three more Star Wars movies, one of them being... Dave Filoni's movie that is going to, I guess, I don't know if they phrased it exactly like this, but it has been phrased this way before of wrapping up this chapter of what we all kind of refer to as the Mandoverse. So it definitely feels like they have a plan in mind, but perhaps they just couldn't say that at the time when asked about more seasons. I'm still confused about that because he he did say that they have a plan and they have like a, they have a plan and things like that. And then somehow some other thing was said that sort of sounded like that plan was like less like more robust. Nice. I think the way that the Mandalorian has written sometimes as a little episodic, a little of crime of the week, you can kind of squeeze a timeline into that and expand and contract it however much you want, I think to a certain extent, depending on the story that you're telling. And I think that's kind of <laughs> the confusion of it because I think John would do that and I think he would figure out where to like fit things actually I think John would be like whatever I want to do this fun thing and Dave would be like okay well we gotta we've got like this period we can put it into (laughs) uh but they they're obviously leading to something like they've got this end point in mind uh with the whatever the movie is going to be uh it'll be some sort of ending maybe not definitive because star wars is forever right but it's going to be some sort of ending but i think that they could figure out how to create more seasons of whatever it is they want whether it's book of boba fett mandalorian ahsoka to to serve that greater story too. And I think they could do that with the Mandalorian. But yeah, I kind of am worried that next week we're going to be done with the Mandalorian for quite a long time. And I don't know how to feel about that. (laughs) Yeah, I'm really nervous about how sad I'm going to be next week. Yeah. I think the stakes are really high at the end here. Yeah. And 
I've, despite a movie announcement, despite wanting to make Star Wars or Mandalorian as long as forever, the stakes really do feel super high for all of our characters with Din being captured, with the separation happening. I am nervous. I'm excited. I am scared. I can't wait to talk about it. But I think this episode, Rick killed it Mm -hmm. as usual. And I'm very excited that he's doing these two last episodes of the season. I think that is a brilliant choice. And I really like the fact that we'll have a consistent director for this finale, basically. And I think I think that uh, Katie Sackhoff is like, there's a, still a lot to come. And she I think she said, I know what we filmed and there's a lot. <laughs> I mean, there's all we also have to wrap up the mythosaur piece of this right. as well. He's, he's there. The mythosaur is there. Yeah. So I think that there's things that will happen on Mandalore. I think next episode is going to be crazy. I'm very excited for it. But this was a ride and I'm nervous. Yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm very nervous. I'm ready to see the finale, but not ready for it to be the end of the season. So right. I think that's the challenge anytime you have a new Star Wars thing come out. I always think about that with the movies, you know, when the sequel trilogy was coming out, uh, particularly when we were watching The Last Jedi. I remember thinking, wow, I'm so ready to see this movie. But in two hours, it's all going to be over and I'm going to have to wait two <laughs> more years <laughs> until the next yes. chapter. So that's kind of what I'm feeling right now, actually. So I mm-hmm. don't know. I don't know what's going to happen to us on Wednesday. <laughs> <laughs> but it's going to be an adventure. I'm excited. Uh, so, yeah, I think, you know, we're going to find out who the spy is. Uh, will Din be set? Well, maybe not. Maybe not. I can't leave this hanging. <laughs> I think it might, it might be hanging, Caitlin. Don't I don't think that. that we should say that it's going to be resolved. We don't know. We don't know. I think it's got to be resolved. It's got to be a result okay. of the of okay. who the other spy is. Or we'll just have to say they did a bad job picking out the title for this episode, for yeah. this chapter. Yeah. So will we see Grogu wield the Darksaber and save his dad and his Mandalorian people? I think that is a viable option, honestly, uh, especially if we've got this loophole. You know, if Bo is captured, then maybe Din takes the Darksaber. Uh, Grogu takes the Darksaber from her and uses it to save Bo and Din. I don't know. To that point, which we didn't talk about, is Grogu was the one that separated the infighting within yes. the Mandalorians. And mm-hmm. I thought that that was a brilliant move. And it really showed that Grogu actually is the one that walks both ways. Mm-hmm. I think maybe Bo does too, like the armor says. But I do think that Grogu is the one that walks both ways and can be the one that can be also unite the Mandalorians. And maybe there's this brilliant trifecta that will happen between Bo, Din, and Grogu. And we've already seen that trio in action but i i think that that was a really big moment and you saying that about the dark saber i mean it has always been interesting that we have a mandalorian jedi and he doesn't have a lightsaber and the dark saber exists so what will happen with that i don't mm-hmm. know yeah it feels like it feels like we've always been leading there the question is is that coming this week or is it coming further into the future I think it makes sense for Grogu to eventually wield the dark saber. Yeah, I can. I think it's probably happening in the future, but yeah. not next week. But we'll yeah. we'll see. Or it could be like he just you know tests it out a little bit, and then he gets it later <laughs> when he's older. Uh, 
you know, he's too young to operate heavy machinery, maybe too young to wield the dark saber as well. All right. Well, I think that is going to wrap it up for this week on The Mandalorian chapters 22 and 23. Thank you guys so much for listening as always. And thank you for uh, hanging in there while we kind of had to do these two episodes together while we are traveling. Uh, like we said at the top of the show, we will be doing like a little celebration recap episode that will be up on our Patreon uh, sometime this week. So be on the lookout for that if you are interested in hearing uh, everything that happened to us at Celebration this year. We also have our live show that is up now. If you want to go back and listen to that, we talked all about the latest news uh, releases uh, at our live show at Celebration. So that is up as well. And if you'd like to talk about all things Star Wars with us online, you can find us on Twitter at SkytalkersPod or our personal handles. Mine is at Caitlin Plesher. Charlotte's is at Clarity. We also have our website, skytalkers.com, Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, everywhere on social media. Uh, you can find us, just search Skytalkers Podcast. Uh, if you would leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, that goes a really long way in helping other people find our show. Or if you want to screenshot that you're listening to the show in real time and share it on your favorite social media platform like Instagram or Twitter, uh, we would love to for you to tag us and we can retweet that or share it on our own Instagram story. And it works a lot like word of mouth, honestly, and is a great way for other people to find the show. So thank you if you have done that. Um, it's always really exciting. And Charlotte and I share them back and forth and we love it. So please keep doing it if you would like to. And if you're interested in other ways to support us, you can head on over to our Patreon and check out our different reward tiers there. And I want to say a huge thank you to these patrons, Maximilian, Jake, Pamela, GMO, Gary, Joe, Cassie, Jenny, Lightsaber Lost, Olivia, Lindsay, Charlotte, Tim, Jonah, Carol, David, Simon, Paul, Danny, Megan, Becky, Z, James, Nick, Christina, and Rachel. Thank you so much for supporting us. Yes, thank you guys so much. And until next time, may the force be with you. May the force be with you. Thank you.